this little church has a pretty big ministry when you're looking at our impact online. There are a number of things that we do. There are a number of things in person that we do. There are a number of groups that meet during the week, not not just civic groups, but a number of groups that pertain to explicitly the work of discipleship and the name of Christ Jesus. I, you know, despite all the forces against this church, I'm very impressed with it. I, I, I couldn't be happier to be the pastor here. My name is Jeffrey Rickman, if you don't know who I am. Um, I've been serving here for eight years, and it's a fantastic group of, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say we're perfected in faith yet. However, it's people that are not offended by the gospel, and that's rare enough, but people who desire to follow it, people who desire to be changed by it, to walk in faith together, it's it's um, it's um a great rarity. It shouldn't be, but it is, and I'm just so blessed to, to be here at the helm. I, I really don't have to do a lot. I have a lot of leeway to do whatever I want, and uh, luckily I, I'm a, a kind of self-driven person person, and the love of Christ Jesus motivates me to do a lot of things. This week, I've, I've gotten to sit down and uh, counsel a number of people, but also uh, record some things that are helpful for a number of people. It's just an amazing thing, the, the life that God has put together for me and for this community, and, and my prayer for you is, as you spend time with, with me right now, is just that you benefit and come closer to the Lord as well. Um, what follows is going to be the recording of uh, my preaching from this last Sunday, and we're still preaching on 1 Corinthians. This is going to be chapter 14. This follows the love chapter, and it comes back to spiritual gifts and how it is that we're supposed to conduct ourselves corporately whenever we gather for worship. So um, it doesn't really apply to you if you're not gathering for worship with anybody. And I know I, I work on you a bit in this podcast, you know, if this is your first time listening, you know, I hope you enjoy it. I hope, I hope it blesses you. But, uh, if you've listened several times before, you know that I'm very clear on the importance of actually assembling with others because it's only in that context that you can even practice so many instructions that are in the Bible. So this one is explicitly about the corporate gathering that churches should be having every week, hopefully on the Lord's day. But, um, these are principles that are largely ignored today, partly because Americans just don't like being told what to do, but partly because we're scripturally illiterate, and that's why I'm doing this, why I'm marching through the Bible, and hopefully why, why you're marching through with me. So if you haven't heard the previous segments here, we've covered a lot of ground. First Corinthians is very rich. It's very good. It's very deep. Um, so it'd be well worth your while to go backwards, wherever you're listening to this podcast, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We started off strong. We've gone strong the whole time. We've only got two chapters left, and as we come to the close, I am interested in how this series has impacted you all, so um, I hope it's been a good thing. The intent here is that it brings you closer to God, so if that, if I've accomplished that with just one person, oh man, is my life um, pleasing to me, and I hope it's pleasing to God, so I hope that happens for you right now. Here we go. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world.
Children, what kind of Savior is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. That's all I'm quizzing y'all on today. Y'all make sure when we do this, do it loud and proud so they don't think I'm just talking over you. I know I'm amplified, but y'all, y'all are preaching to them. Let them know the reality here. We have a Savior who is both fully divine and fully human, and because of those things is able to perfectly redeem us from our sins and bring us back to God. So it's in his shadow, it's under the shadow of his cross, the redeeming work he did on the cross that we assemble in his name and what we walk through his holy word and we trust that he knows better than we do as to how we need to lead our lives. Amen. Now, chapter 14 picks up uh, the last. I mean, it's 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 all been building more and more. It's going to build. 15 is, is a big chapter we'll cover next week. 16 is important as well. 14 deals directly with what was introduced in chapter 12, which was spiritual gifts. I don't know how many of you remember this. There are many gifts that the Holy Spirit gives, even though we're all one in Christ. God showers his gifts upon us, not always equally. Some people can have a word of knowledge. Some have a word of wisdom, some teaching, some discerning spirits, some speaking in tongues, some prophesying. There are several different gifts that are listed at different places. The one that's causing problems in Corinth is speaking in tongues. And so he is trying to, he's not saying that tongues is bad or wrong, but he is trying to set people's understanding right around tongues. And he says, it doesn't matter what spiritual gift you have, there is something that is much more important. And that's what he spent chapter 13 talking about. What was that most important thing? Love. So no matter what we do, if it's not undergirded by the love of Christ Jesus, then it is just an annoyance. It's no good. It's not worth anything. The Corinthians, it seems quite clear, are there's some of them that have been given the gift of tongues, but they're using it to glorify themselves. They see themselves as over and above the rest of the assembly. They've been given a special gift, and they're flexing it in front of others. They are not using it rightly. And so we've already talked about how it is that God gives gifts to those who are not in right relationship with him. He does that. It's weird, but it does happen. He's now reoriented us to prioritize love first and gifts second. But even when you value them behind love, there's still a question of how it is we're supposed to use those spiritual gifts when we're gathered together. So that's what he's going to be dealing with in this chapter right here has a lot to do with the church. Remember, church is an English word that corresponds to the Greek word ekklesia, which means quite literally assembly. It's not talking about the building. It's talking about when the whole covenant community in a given area assembles, that's the church. How do we do church in light of the spiritual gifts? That's what he's addressing here. For, chapter 14, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, a lot of people read this to show favoritism as prophecy being the best of the spiritual gifts. He's, he's going to use language that sounds like that, but I'm going to say at the outset, 
ranking spiritual gifts is the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. He, in chapter 13, made very clear, love is the most important thing. If you are in the love of Christ Jesus, you have everything. If you're not in the love of Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter what spiritual gifts you have, you have nothing. He's already been very clear about this. He's, the implicit thing here is, when we are assembled, what is the most helpful word for us to get? What is the most helpful spiritual gift to share? He's saying prophecy as over above tongues, and then he explains why. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue, he's talking about angelic tongues or a, a language that, that other people don't know, precedented throughout the New Testament. Anyone who does that does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Mystery in the New Testament is a good thing. So they're talking about good things. Remember on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles and they were talking in other languages about the wondrous works of God. That was a good thing. That's, that's within this realm of mysteries. It's things that are hidden to worldly people. They're being revealed in tongues. But people can't understand them, right? In, in Jerusalem, they could on the day of uh, Pentecost because there were people from all over the world gathered there. Usually, when Christians are gathered for worship, it's with people who come from the same culture, speak the same language. Verse 3, But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. These are three important things. Strengthening, uh, same word as building up, edifying. We're supposed to be building each other up. Encouraging, obvious meaning that goes alongside that. And comfort. Remember, the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John is called the comforter. The Greek word is paraclete, paraklete. And the notion is that we are doing the work of the Holy Spirit when we are prophesying. We're comforting one another. We're building each other up. Now, there's also room for admonishing and correcting in the assembly. And we're told plenty of scripture about that. But when prophecy is concerned, prophecy, one of the, the distinctive characteristics here are, is it building up? Is it encouraging? Is it comforting? In the Old Testament, prophecy was not always comforting, or actually it was rarely comforting or encouraging. The prophets were covenant lawyers that said, you're not doing right, God is going to punish you, you have it coming. In the New Testament prophecy, it seems to be quite different. The covenant community is supposed to be walking rightly in faith, supported by those who are given a prophetic word in the body to encourage and support and build them up. Verse 4, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. Is that a bad thing to do? No. In the body of Christ, though, it misses the point. Edify means build up, remember? So it's not wrong. I mean, good, yes, build yourself up. That's a good thing to do. However, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. The whole thing is, if you're gathered with the body, are you thinking of yourself or are you thinking of others? Right? And that's the principle that he's been holding up throughout the letter is, are you a baby or an infant or a child thinking of yourself first, or are you an adult putting God and others first. That's the distinction he's drawn around the Lord's Supper, around eating food sacrificed to idols, around sexual behavior. All the time he's making clear with each one of these is your primary concern, others or self. How many times does he have to line it out for us before we understand, oh, this is a principle that applies universally in our lives. Now, is that to say we never think of ourselves? No. He says, you have your other six and a half days of the week to think about yourselves at home and build yourself up. He's saying, when you come together, this is what you need to be thinking about, not yourself, but others. Verse 5, I would like 
every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So he's not, he's not creating a caste system where some are better than others. He's saying in the context of the assembly, those who prophesy in the language people understand are more helpful. We need them. Unless if someone is speaking in tongues and there's a translator or interpreter present, in which case it's, both are needed. Verse 6, and he'll talk more about the interpreters, so if you have questions about that, just, just wait. Verse 6, now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? That's a rhetorical question. He's saying, I'm not building you up at all if I'm speaking to you in a language that you don't know. Verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? So he's using a metaphor here, right? And I, I know I don't make you struggle with my uh, ukulele playing very often, but don't you agree that the quality of our singing would be different if the ukulele wasn't even in tune or wasn't even stringed, if it was just making droning noise? Would that be as nice as if I have it tuned nicely and everybody can figure out the notes? He's saying the whole point here is anything that any noise that we make should have a clear message that helps bring glory to God. It shouldn't just be to a listener's ears babbling. He's not saying that tongues is babbling. He's saying it is a real message. He's saying it matters, though, if people can understand it. That's the core key thing here. Verse 8, again, this is another metaphor. If the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? A better translation is actually a bugle, because we've seen the, the old cartoons and movies where in battle, people would blow bugles to get the, the troops in position. The notion being, there were different bugle calls that would tell an army how to move, you know, whether to retreat or advance, whether to run or walk. There were funeral bugles. Um, it only does one blast, one, but if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to ruin everything. The army isn't going to know what to do. So he's saying the, the sounds we make, the words we say in worship actually matter very much. What we have right here is an army. Is it being mobilized in a way that glorifies God? Or are we just confusing the heck out of one another and then going home? Verse 9, so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with y'all. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So using this metaphor, he says, you know, when, we're, when you go to a different country, people speak a different language, and if you haven't learned that language, you are an alien. You are, you are a foreigner, right? And he's saying, this is what you're doing to your brothers and sisters in Christ when you speak in an unknown tongue. You're making them feel like foreigners. And it's fun to be a foreigner, right? But you don't go to a foreign place to feel at home, to get comforted and encouraged. You go there to have a new experience, a new weird experience. That's not what church is. Church is being with your spiritual family. Church is being uh, in your spiritual home. 
And if you are speaking in a language that people don't understand, then you're making them feel like strangers in their own household. Can you imagine how bad that feels? So don't do it. Verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. So when someone speaks in tongues, someone else can be, by the power of the Spirit, made to interpret. Or if you are given a spirit in another tongue, a message in another tongue, you can pray for the Holy Spirit to also interpret that for you. That's, that seems to be what he's saying here. You, the, the speech and the interpretation can happen inside the same person, or it can be a dual affair. So if you're given a message of tongues, he's not saying, be quiet about it. He's saying, well, do you pray to God? See if he'll give you the message to tell them. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding, my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. What Paul is talking about here is, Worship is not just a matter of the heart, but also of the head. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what Jesus preached. Every part of us should be united in a holistic identity of Christ. And so what this means here is God might be pouring something into your heart, but your prayer needs to be that your head will understand it. Otherwise, what's the point? So also with our singing, do we still sing in worship nowadays? Yes, we sing words, but how often are we thinking about what they mean? So often we're carried away by the sentiment of it, but we don't think about the content of it. it we don't make it real up here. And he says the whole point of these words is to make them real up here because it's what's real up here that determines how we live our lives. It's a cooperative effort between head and heart. Verse 16, otherwise... When you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. So he's, he's, when he's talking about someone in the position of an inquirer, in the early church, they didn't do what, what most churches do today where, oh, you want to get baptized? Here you go. Okay, you're a member now. They had a period of instruction and indoctrination, and people who had been sitting under the instruction of the church were called inquirers, but they hadn't been initiated yet. They were still foreigners to the community. And he's saying, when you're speaking in tongues, you're putting people who don't understand you, and the, they're not feeling initiated like this is their family. Rather, they feel like they're just novices. They're inquirers. Actually, the word in the Greek is idiote, where we get the word idiot. So I, I like the translation. If you're making other people feel like an idiot in worship, how are they supposed to say amen to what you're saying? Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He's not exactly bragging here, but he is establishing his spiritual supremacy over them. Verse 19, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Is he making clear what's more important here? So he's speaking in tongues all the time, he says, but not in worship. Right here is a huge corrective for us today. How many people come to worship and they have their holy hour each week and then they go home, they don't pray, they don't read the scriptures, they don't speak in tongues, they don't seek the Lord, they save that for one hour a week on the weekend. 
I think that's the norm in American religion today. Actually, the norm is not even going to worship that often and still not seeking God at home. Here, what he's saying is, you remember what he said when around the Lord's Supper, people were coming hungry and they were eating too much food so that some people didn't get any? He said, eat at home before you come. The whole point is how you share this time and space with others. And similarly, he's saying, yes, speak in tongues at home all the time. But don't do it here if there is no interpreter, because it's just noise to them. You're alienating people. You see how this works? The principle is you should have a very rich spiritual life outside of the assembly, and you should only do in the assembly what's good for everybody. So we don't do all the things in worship. We don't do whatever feels good or whatever I need to get my cup filled up in worship. We do what's good for everybody. And if it's not good for everybody, we don't do it. We do it at home. Brothers and sisters, verse 20, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. So this is, this is another, for evangelism in our culture today, there are a lot of people who think, oh, I got to do evil things so that I show that I understand it. You know, Game of Thrones was a very ungodly show on TV. I regret now that I'd watched it, but the justification was, well, if I'm going to minister to this present age, I need to know what they're doing, what they're watching, what they're thinking about. And here that, that is undressed for what it is. You should be an infant to evil. You shouldn't know about it. You shouldn't be acquainted with it. It doesn't matter if it helps you connect with evil. Uh, our job is not to connect well with Satan. <laughs> our job is to connect well with sinners who Christ is calling out of their sin. Verse 21, in the law it is written with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. Is anybody else hot? No? Everybody's okay? I, you're a little hot? Okay. Zachary, would you just open the door over there? Do you know how to do that, the main door? Key, just have it, well, Mr. Mike will show you. And then if it gets too cold, we'll shut it. But I think it's good to have just some movement of air so it's not stale air, okay? All right, verse, verse, uh, verse 21. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So this is a part where it's really easy to get tripped up because the context of Isaiah's words there are the Israelites were not listening. Judean Israelites, ancient Jews, were not listening to God's words. So because they were not listening to him through the prophets, God was going to let them be defeated by the Assyrians, or later the Babylonians. They would be cast out in exile, and through the, the words of the Assyrians and Babylonians, that those languages they didn't know, God would be telling them, hey, you should have been faithful to me. He's saying, I'm going to use their language to humble you. Now the problem was, even then, most of the Israelites, Jews, were not humbled. And I think that's the point here. He's saying... There's no point speaking in tongues in the assembly because if people aren't listening, they're not listening. The whole point is you need to speak in a way they can understand and people need to resolve to listen to the Lord. And if that's not happening, you're, you're a synagogue of Satan pretty much. Verse 22, tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. That in the context of ancient Judea was, you've been faithless in covenant, so you're going to hear these tongues you don't understand now. 
So I think he's saying even in the, in the body of believers, it's an insult to people to speak to them in a language they don't understand. It infers misbehavior like they, they should not be understanding what's being said. See, this is complicated. People are, uh, I, but you can't skip over the parts that are complicated. I mean, that's, I don't get to just say, well, this is complicated, so let's just skip over it. We have to try and understand this, but I can't do much better than that. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So is this community of believers, we should be prophesying. So, if the whole church comes together, and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So, he's, he's saying this is not a good thing to do if you want to bring people in. It's a great thing to do if you just want to cast people out. Verse 24, but if an unbeliever, did I already read this? I'm going to read it again. Verse 24, if an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everybody's prophesying, they Oh, no, no, no. Okay, no. This is not the same thing. Before it was tongues, now it's prophesying. If they come in and everybody's prophesying, they are convicted of sin and all brought under judgment by all. So here's a weird thing. We think that in order to bring people close, we should act as though they're sinless and they're great and we would just love to have them. Here he's saying, no, if someone new comes in, speak in the Spirit and the Spirit will reveal their sin and they will confess their sin and repent because they know that God is here, because we're speaking to hidden things. That's what prophecy is. It's speaking to things hidden behind the veil that are not readily seen by others. If we're prophesying in the assembly of saints, then sins are going to be revealed. People are going to be moved to repentance. And if they're not moved to repentance by having their sins revealed, well, God is not calling them. That would be the inference here. Verse 25 Oh, yeah, I shouldn't have cut off there. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. That's what happens when people are prophesying. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What a thing. Can you imagine not being so defensive that if people call out your sins, you go, God is here, rather than how dare you judge me? But that's clearly the expectation, right? Verse 26, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, in parentheses, in worship, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. This is why Francis Chan closed the doors to his megachurch. He said, the scriptural expectation is that every member of the body of Christ comes with something to offer for the upbuilding of the body. He looked around and he said, all these people in the pews, they're just sitting. They're not given an opportunity to share any of the spiritual gifts God has given them. It's just me and the band up here. Something's off. So he closed the doors and he broke them up into small uh, house churches where everybody was expected to come with a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Let me ask you real quick. As you hear Paul talking do you get the sense that for him the most important thing was every individual being built up or that the most important thing was that the church be built up? It seems so obvious when you read this. This is one of the things that pushes real hard against our culture today. In our culture today, people have chosen to believe, oh, the church is optional. I just need to have my personal faith. But Paul here is not talking about, he does talk in other places about the importance of personal faith. But with the Corinthians, they're letting their personal faith become so distracting that it's actually hurting the assembly. And he's saying, no, the assembly is more important than you. Everything we do needs to be measured against 
Is this showing the love for others of Christ Jesus, or am I prioritizing myself above others? That's what he's coming to over and over again, and I'd be a bad pastor if I didn't come to it over and over again. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. So, yeah, there's some people like, oh, I'm supposed to keep holy things silent in the assembly? Yeah, if they're not helpful, yeah, shut up about it. Because it's going to distract. It's not just going to be a waste of time. It's going to distract and harm other people's faith. So use that discernment. Don't be children. Grow up in that way. Verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. This is an important thing to take note of. It's not as though when someone prophesies, we just thoughtlessly say, oh, it's the word of God. Rather, we weigh it. There's a discerning of the spirits. There is a, how does this fit with God's word? How does this fit with who God is? That has to take place. And what we kind of imagine is we did that silently because that would be very disrespectful to be done in front of others. But it seems they were doing this in front of others. And this comes into play in a moment whenever he tells women not to, to speak. Verse 30, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. The notion here being that there should never be more than one person talking. Have you ever been in a setting where everybody is close together, but there are multiple conversations going on at the same time? There are some people for whom that's normal. Guys, that's rude. <laughs> that's it, because that means that the people that are not part of your conversation are missing out. You know? So I remember my teacher, if we, we talked in class growing up, they would say, Jeffrey, do you have something to say to the class? And then, no, Mrs. So-and-so. And then the inference being, then shut up, Jeffrey, because the whole thing is we're in a group right now. If you're having your own private conversation, that's not helpful. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to... To the control of prophets, that means you can control whether you're opening your mouth or not. You can decide whether or not to speak. And under certain circumstances, you should not open your mouth. This has been really hard for me to learn in life, but sometimes it's better for me to just keep my mouth shut. For God is not a God of disorder. Here's a key phrase here. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So the notion here is, Yes, in governing worship, only one person should be talking at any given time. Everybody should be paying attention. Everybody should be edified. But it's not just in worship. God is not a God of chaos or disorder. Our lives are not to reflect chaos or disorder. Rather, God is of order and peace. And that's what our lives should reflect in every way. Here's the weird part. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Immediately, so, women go, so many women go, I don't think my husband's smarter than me. I don't know if I should ask him things at home. Um, the, the problem here is that in chapter 11, he explicitly said that when a woman has a sign of authority overhead and she is in submission to God, that it is fully appropriate for her to prophesy or pray in the communion of saints. So did he lie? So was he schizophrenic? 
This is kind of weird. How do you fit this together where he makes room for women to speak in chapter 11, but now he's saying, no, they all just need to be quiet. There are different theories, and I didn't get to read them all this week. I read some because this bothers me. The, the scripture's witness has to be one. If at any point we're going, well, these two don't seem to fit, so you have to choose one over the other, that's when you're going to be in faithless relationship with the scripture. It all has to fit, but sometimes it requires a lot of work on our part. And I haven't done the requisite work to know how to fit all this together. So I'm not going to say, this is the word of God, this is how we should all practice it here. What I will say is the theory that I currently like most and this is just me talking here. This is not the word of God. The one that I like most is that in this scrutinizing the prophecies, weighing the prophecies, the notion here is that there has to be a time of scrutinizing and people in the assembly saying, well, Brother Jeffrey lifted up a word just now, but look at what's in Genesis. It really doesn't seem to fit. This kind of flies in the face of scripture. Now, that would already be hard enough if you're among your peers, but imagine your wife gets up in the assembly and says, oh, honey, I think you're wrong. I think you just committed heresy. And you know what? You probably shouldn't even be talking in the worship today because you were just yelling at me and the kids 30 minutes ago. You know, it has a big opportunity. Here it says, when it says women, verse 34, the actual phrase is your women. Humen uh, gunaikis, I think, is your women, your wives. Uh, the notion is that whenever you are a household unit coming into the body of Christ, it's really only helpful if you're going to do this hard work of discerning the will of God. If you're, if you're wives, if you're uh, uh, undeveloped children, un, unmature children, have questions or want to push back, save it till you get home. And then I don't know how much that applies today. I mean, there are some parts of the scriptures that apply more often than not today. There are a lot of unmarried women in the body. Does that mean they just have to go home and be ignorant? I have kind of a hard time imagining that. But what I'd like to, you to imagine is what happens if when we get home, families actually talk about what they talked about in worship that day. I've talked to so many of you over the years, and I, and I ask, well, what, what did you all talk about when you got home? You know, did you talk about this at all? And the answer, I've never once, no, I'm not going to say it never once. It's been very rare that anyone has said, yeah, we talked about it when we got home. Usually, families don't talk about this stuff at all. That's what we tithe to the church for, to pay the pastor to talk to us, right? But the thing is, unless you're talking about this stuff at home, it's not going to be real to you. It's all just theory. But when you're taking this stuff home and talking about it and asking each other questions and going, well, Joe, you're the, you're the head of the household. Do you know the answer to this question? You're going, well, I kind of don't. Anybody know? I mean, when I don't know the answer to a question, I want to have it figured out. But if my wife is not highlighting that I have a huge weak spot, then I'm not going to do that homework. So I need my wife, and I'm going to brag on my wife. She has been really digging into her faith and reading all kinds of stuff and coming to me with questions, and sometimes I know something that's helpful, and other times I'm going... I don't know. What are you reading? Tell me. And then we get to discern that together. And I'll tell you, it is a lot more fun talking with my wife about this stuff than anybody else. And that's how it should be. We should be talking with our spouses about this at home. So what if, again, worship is not everybody gets it out of their system. What if worship is we do what's best for everybody and then we take the rest home with us and throughout the week we're engaging our household about it? You guys know something about engaging your household with the stuff you do here. That's something that is obviously implied here. So we can get all huffy about, 
they, there were patriarchy and they were, they were trampling on women. Or you can look at, they're telling their wives to go home and talk to their husbands about their faith and sharpen their husband's faith. They're telling their husbands and men that they need to know what they're talking about and encourage their wives and their families. Is that a bad message? We get to decide how we interpret these things. I think it's good to do it charitably, even if we don't fully understand it. Last couple paragraphs, verse 36. Or did the word of God originate with you? Did the word of God originate with you? Did it originate with the Corinthians? Who did it originate with? God. He decides how we do things. He decides what we believe. Or are you the only people it has reached? He's mocking them. If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted in the spirit, let them acknowledge what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. The inference there is, if they don't acknowledge that Paul is right here, they're not of God. You either agree with him and you are of God, or you disagree with him and you are exposed as not of God. Verse 38, but if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Who do you think he's saying will ignore them? I think it's pretty clear, the Lord on the day of judgment. If you ignore God's word, God will ignore you on the day of judgment. That's a terrifying prospect. Last paragraph, 39. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we went over, but not by as much as I thought we would. And uh, you'll notice there, the one thing I forgot to pick on, and it's, it's self-serving, forgive me, but he talked about how everybody should come and bring something for the assembly to build it up, right? And a lot of people who think on logistics go, man, if there's more than 10 people in that church, that's going to go a while, isn't it? And the answer is, yeah. They didn't constrain worship to one hour once a week in the early church. That's something that we did because we like to domesticate God. But that is, that is a very modern concern. What we need to do is understand this is for edification. Y'all come with different trials and needs and tribulations and questions, and we have this one time once a week to get together for that, and God help us if we give it short shrift. I don't think that's right. So if any of you ever has, let me say this, I, I'm going to make a commitment to you. If anyone is coming in here with questions that you need answers to and you don't ask, struggles that you need comfort with and you don't let yourself be ministered to, if you don't let the church be the church, then the blood of this church is on your hands in a bad way. We, I started worship saying, are we just a Christian social club that gives one hour a week and then goes back to our worldly lives? Or is this the body of Christ, the family of Christ? That decision is not made by me. It's made by you all collectively about how much you let the church be the church in your life. And if you're keeping secrets and keeping sins to yourself and you're not sharing anything with the body of Christ because of one reason or another, you're not letting the church be the church. You're cheapening what we're doing here. And that's not to say you need to come and broadcast your dirty laundry. That is to say that you should be sharing your burdens with each other. You should be sharing them with me. I love you. But if you can't trust me, you should have somebody else in the church that you're confessing your sins to and sharing your life with. You just should. Christ did not mean for us to be alone, to live alone. And just because you have somebody in your household doesn't mean you're doing it right. You need to share. If not with your house members, then people in the household of God. I'm not a good preacher if I'm not pushing this. When you get 
this message from Paul in God's word, the church is not some optional thing off to the side. It should be at the center of our faith together. Amen? And that just can't happen if we don't let the church be the church. Thanks for letting me have a closing tirade. I feel good now. I hope it was good for you. Um, we're going to sing now. And it's going to be a reminder at the very end about the covenant we've made with God, who I promised to be for him. Oh, Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end. And it ends with, oh, Jesus, you have promised. We're reminding ourselves at the end of this covenant renewal time what the covenant is. Let's stand and sing. Hymn number 396.